Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Sumi Roy, and I'm Senior Analyst for ETF.com. And I'm Jeff Benjamin, Wealth Management Editor here at ETF.com. This week, we're talking to Rick Edelman, founder of Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals and author of The Truth About Crypto. All right, Rick, thanks for being here. Thanks for helping us out. Uh, there's a lot going on in the uh, ETF space right now. Uh, spot Bitcoin uh, is at the top of everyone's uh, mind, I guess. Uh, we don't know when the first spot Bitcoin ETF will be approved, but uh, there are there are signs pointing to January. What What's your take on uh on spot Bitcoin, when it will be approved, when it could be approved, I guess, the first one. Uh, you're right. There, There is an expectation that it will occur uh, no later than early January. I'm in the camp that believes it'll actually happen sooner. It'll likely happen before the end of this year. There is a hard stop that the SEC is facing. January 10 is the regulatory deadline for them to respond to ARK Invest's ETF application. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I'm expecting that the SEC will uh, act prior to that deadline. The other applications then fall in a domino order after that, all the way out to March. Uh, so I believe the SEC will act likely sooner. Uh, and I also believe that the SEC will approve more than one when they finally say yes. Uh, I don't think they'll say yes to merely one. I think they'll say mm -hmm. yes to many and maybe all of the applications simultaneously. Okay, let's let's unpack that just a little bit. Um, why I want to know why you think they're going to approve before January. And if some of these if, if these uh, filings have come in over several months, uh, can the SEC's review be all caught up enough to uh, approve them all at once? And and finally, what are the sticking points that the SEC is, that you think the SEC might be uh, kind of hanging on to at this point? Well, I think that the uh, reason the SEC is likely to act sooner than January 10 is that they've been working very hard on this issue, and I think they're simply going to complete their work. Uh, I also think that they may want to take advantage of the holiday slow time to say yes to these at a period when nobody's really paying a whole lot of attention because they're focused on the Christmas holidays. Uh, so I think it's a way for them to say yes in a, in a, in a period of relative quiet in the marketplace, uh, as opposed to after January 1, when everybody is fixated and focused on the coming deadline. I mm -hmm. also believe that they're going to say yes to uh, multiple ETFs simultaneously because of the lesson they learned with GLD. Uh, way back when the first gold ETF was approved, the SEC said yes to GLD first and solely. And what we've learned since is that giving approval to a single ETF in a category gives an early first mover advantage. Today, GLD has billions of dollars in assets under management. The other gold ETFs have tens of millions. So mm -hmm. when you say yes to a single uh, fund, you're reducing uh, investor choice and that eliminates competition in the marketplace. And that's not good for investors. And I think the SEC has realized that lesson uh, with gold, and they're not going to make that mistake again. By saying yes to all nine of these ETFs simultaneously, they're going to create market competition. That's going to reduce costs as the funds try to strive for uh, gaining market share. And that's good for the investor. So I, I think that they're more likely to say yes to many than to only one uh, initially. And let's face it, these ETFs, 
ETFs are all pretty similar. They're all single asset funds. They're all merely buying Bitcoin. So other than their choice of custodian and their choice of surveillance provider and their expense ratio, there's not a lot of difference between them. Uh, and mm -hmm. as a result, the SEC is going to recognize there's really, mm -hmm. it's really unfair to say yes to one ahead of all the others. And And then what are, do you think the sticking points that the SEC is still dwelling on? Uh, I think the SEC is focusing on uh, a couple of remaining issues. Number one is the surveillance agreements. The big issue that the SEC is dealing with is what is answering a simple question. What is Bitcoin's price? Now, that might seem to be a silly question. If you want to know what is the price of IBM stock, you know what it is. Just look at the New York Stock Exchange where IBM trades, and you know exactly what the price is. There's no disagreement. Everybody everywhere looks at the same price of IBM. But Bitcoin is a globally traded asset 24-7, uh, and different exchanges make Bitcoin available all around the world, and they often have different prices. So what's the real price of Bitcoin? What's the legitimate price? What is a price that investors can rely on, especially since the markets may close at 4 p.m., which affects ETFs, but it's still wide open all around the world, including nights and weekends and holidays. That's a little bit different. This is not the first time the SEC has faced this. They had the same issue with gold. They had the same issue with oil. Um, Bitcoin is similar in that regard. So the SEC wants to know that these ETFs are using a surveillance partner. When I say surveillance, I mean somebody who is surveilling the Bitcoin marketplace on a global basis to effectively and accurately assert what the current price of Bitcoin is. So the SEC wants to verify with these ETF providers that they have an effective surveillance mechanism in place that is legitimate and acceptable to the SEC. They also want to make sure that the custodian is valid and reliable, um, because when we buy shares of IBM stock, you know, none of us give it any thought because we've been doing this for a couple of hundred years and we've gotten really good at custody of equities and their shares. So we don't worry about choosing Schwab versus Fidelity versus E-Trade or, or Merrill Lynch or Goldman. We don't think about the fear that the custodian may collapse or that the custodian may steal our shares. Well, we've seen a lot of scandal in Bitcoin, including most prominently FTX, uh, and so the SEC wants to make sure that the custodians that these ETFs are selecting to mm -hmm. hold the the, ET, the, the Bitcoin uh, tokens are a legitimate custodian. Uh, and I believe that the, that issue has been resolved to the mm -hmm. SEC's satisfaction. And I think they're going to quickly conclude that their surveillance uh, concern is equally satisfied. And that's when the SEC will say yes. Rick, is this a done deal or is there anything that could derail this and, you know, the SEC might prevent these from coming to market? Because, as you know, for 10 years, the SEC has blocked spot Bitcoin ETFs. Has the verdict on that grayscale trial just finally tipped the scales where the SEC has to now approve it? Everybody believes so, Sumit, but but there isn't a, it isn't a done deal by any stretch. Gary Gensler has been a a uh, significant obstacle and and frankly downright blockade uh, against the launch of these ETFs for a very long time, as we know. Uh, he is kicking and screaming, uh, and but but the attitude is that 
he's painted himself into a corner. Uh, he's really got nowhere else to go. He lost the grayscale lawsuit this summer, as you pointed out. The court ruled that the SEC acted arbitrarily and capriciously in denying the grayscale uh, ETF application and vacated the SEC's order requiring the SEC to revisit its decision on grayscale. Uh, the SEC had 45 days to appeal that decision and chose not to appeal, which basically means they have to comply with the court order. And in fact, the court issued a subsequent order instructing the SEC to get on with it. Uh, members of Congress have also written a letter to the SEC demanding that they approve these ETFs immediately. There is no legitimate reason for the SEC to continue to be an obstacle. And yet, the, you know, Gensler could thumb his nose at everybody and continue to stall and delay. Uh, and, you know, so who knows uh, what's going to go on. But most people believe that the SEC is going to acquiesce. It will uh, obey the court order. Uh, and that will likely lead to approval of these ETFs. Will they wait until the very last minute, January 10th? And at that time, will they say yes only to one? Or will they act uh, sooner and more broadly? So nobody knows for sure. But I think part of the reason that you've been seeing a rapid increase in the price of Bitcoin is because of widespread market expectation that the SEC will say yes and that there will be a significant inflow into these products by the advisory community as well as individual investors. And as that inflow occurs, the price of Bitcoin will rise. And that's why you're seeing the price rise in anticipation of that. I'm glad you brought that up, right? Because I was going to ask you, how much money do you expect uh, spot Bitcoin ETFs could take in? I've heard some really wide ranging estimates, some of them really eye popping, you know, tens of billions of dollars. What do you think? Yeah, I'm one of them. I, I can I can foresee $150 billion flowing into Bitcoin wow. uh, as a result of this. And let me explain to you where that crazy number comes from. Uh, according to the, the data that we have seen and that we have produced ourselves uh, at uh, DACFP, uh, the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, we have found that only 12% of financial advisors are currently recommending Bitcoin to clients. The number one reason advisors cite for not engaging in Bitcoin is that there's no effective, easy way for them to do so. And that is why 77% of financial advisors say they're waiting for a Bitcoin ETF uh, and that they will engage in it when it becomes available. So just look at the flat out numbers. Independent uh, RIAs manage $8 trillion in assets. Three quarters of them say that they're going to buy the Bitcoin ETF on behalf of their clients when it becomes available. And they say that the typical allocation they'll provide is two to three percent. So take eight trillion dollars times 75 percent times two percent and you come up with hundreds of billions of dollars in assets. And that doesn't even include the investors themselves who are do-it-yourselfers or the institutions which are increasingly engaging in crypto. Over the last month, the number of Bitcoin trades of $100,000 or more has hit an all-time high, which means institutional investors are engaging at a very high level. So it's easy to anticipate that hundreds of millions for sure and easily tens of billions of dollars are going to flow into these Bitcoin ETFs and into crypto generally. And two other facts. Number one, Bitcoin's market cap is only around 500 billion right now. 
So if you're going to add 100 or 200 billion to that market cap, you're going to have an incredible impact on the price of Bitcoin. Number two, and this is equally important, this isn't going to happen overnight. Don't expect that these ETFs will launch today and tomorrow there's this massive inflow because advisors need time. First of all, we need the investment committees to do their due diligence, decide which of these ETF products they want to make available on their platforms. Simultaneously, the compliance department has to establish policies and procedures, swim lanes and guideposts for their advisors. They're going to have to, in many cases, update their ADVs or establish disclosure documents for investors and their clients of their firms. This is going to take some time. Most advisors don't really know much about Bitcoin at all, let alone these Bitcoin ETFs. They're going to need training. So the sales and marketing teams and the planning operations of these firms are going to have to spend time training their advisors. This is going to take months, even years to fully bake in this asset flow that I'm predicting is going to occur. It's not going to happen in days or weeks. It's going to happen over the next couple of months and couple of years. That's incredible. $150 billion. I want to get more into kind of the investment case for Bitcoin in a minute. But before we get to that, Rick, I wanted to ask you, you know, assuming we get these spot Bitcoin ETFs, what's next after that? Do spot Bitcoin ETFs then open the door to spot ETFs tied to other cryptocurrencies? And if so, would it be limited to the big ones like Ether or could we see even spot Dogecoin ETFs? Uh, there are already applications on file with the SEC for spot Ethereum ETFs. BlackRock has filed one. Uh, ARK uh, has filed one. And, and so have other companies, uh, Bitwise and, and others. So, yes, this is just the beginning. But but it's not about the ETFs. It's about a fundamental fact that we're all kind of ignoring and forgetting about uh, regarding investor. Ad, uh, I'm sorry, investment advisor attitudes. Uh, everybody's excited about the Bitcoin ETF, uh, because we all love ETFs. We're all familiar with them. Uh, and it's obvious why they're low cost, they're transparent, they're highly liquid. Uh, and we use them routinely in our portfolio development because it's easy to rebalance and dollar cost average and tax loss harvest. Uh, clients are very familiar with them. We don't have to build a new tech stack. We don't have to retrain our staff. So this is why the, the Bitcoin ETF has been considered the holy grail of crypto to get the financial advisory community engaged uh, in crypto. So that's why there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm. And it will be the entree through which most advisors engage for the first time in allocating client assets to crypto. But it won't take long for advisors who do that to then step back and realize all they've done is given their clients Bitcoin. Bitcoin is only one of the digital assets. It's about half of the industry's market cap, but it's only one. It doesn't include Ethereum. It doesn't include Solana or Polygon uh, or uh, any of the other coins that are significant, like Chainlink or Filecoin uh, and so on. And advisors, beyond all else, love the notion of diversification. We wouldn't put all of our clients' assets into IBM stock. We would rather buy the S&P 500. 
And advisors are going to be fairly quick to recognize that while Bitcoin ETF was a good entree into the space, that's not the end of the game. They're going to realize that they want to provide their clients with broader diversification, especially when they discover that Bitcoin isn't necessarily the fastest growing digital asset. Its price appreciation might not be as good as it is with other coins. So they're going to use this ETF as a door opener to get into the space. And then they're going to realize there's more to the story than just this. And they're going to look for other investment opportunities that go beyond Bitcoin, not just an Ethereum ETF, if and when that ever becomes available. And I think that's going to take quite a while for the SEC to say yes to that. Uh, but they're going to look at crypto SMAs, which allow you to build a personalized, customized portfolio of the top 10 or 15 digital assets. Eaglebrook Advisors is the largest crypto SMA provider. Portfolios are made available through Franklin Templeton and Bitwise and other major players. So advisors can create a highly diversified crypto portfolio in that fashion. Uh, they're going to look at private placements. They're going to look at proxy stocks. They're going to look at um, uh, crypto ETFs, which invest in publicly traded stocks of companies that are engaged in the blockchain and digital asset space. In other words, you're going to see a rising tide scenario scenario where advisors ultimately realize it's not just about oil, it's about the entire energy sector. It's not just about gold, it's about the entire precious metals market. It's not just about Bitcoin, it's about the entire crypto community. So hey, you're going to see Rick, a lot me, of this over time. Let me time. ask you here, Rick, you you touched on a couple of things that we've been following pretty closely here at ETF.com. The, the, the appeal of ETFs among financial advisors while simultaneously uh, expressing a general, again, a general dislike for crypto or a general disinterest for crypto. Now, it sounds like you're suggesting a spot Bitcoin ETF is going to kind of kick open that door a little bit. But what and I, I can I can follow your line of thinking there. But where I want to know where crypto fits in a diversified portfolio? I mean, is it a stock uh, proxy? Is it a bond proxy? Is it alternatives? I mean, this is something, digital currencies, this is brand new to, not brand new, but it's it's not your traditional 60-40 portfolio. Uh, you're right, Jeff. This isn't a new asset class. This is the first new asset class in 170 years. The last mm -hmm. time we had a new asset class was the discovery of oil in the 1850s. So this is new and different. Uh, and is unlike any other asset class we've ever seen, just as oil was different from any other asset class. What we ha can see now that we've got 14 years of price history in Bitcoin, we can see that there are two facts about Bitcoin that are undeniable. Number one, incredible price volatility. Now, that's not unusual when you have a brand new emerging technology. The price of oil in the early days was incredibly volatile. When gold uh, left the gold standard in the 70s, its price was incredibly volatile. When Amazon was first introduced in the 90s, its price was incredibly volatile. In fact, it was as much volatility in the first 14 years of Amazon's life as there is in Bitcoin's first 14 years. It's the nature of a new emerging technology as people are trying to figure out, is this real? Is it going to last? Is there going to be market competition? Is there going to be consumer and investor interest? And so on. So for those reasons, you see incredible price volatility, which number one means 
if you believe in portfolio diversification, you love that fact because we know that when you engage in portfolio rebalancing, you take advantage of volatile assets. When the price jumps up, you rebalance out of it to preserve your profit. When the price drops down, you rebalance into it to buy low. Rebalancing is a tried and true investment strategy and Bitcoin and crypto in general supports rebalancing. Number two is the fact that Bitcoin's price history has proven that it is non-correlated to all other asset classes. Its prices move without regard to what's happening to stocks, bonds, real estate, gold, oil, et cetera. And that makes it a wonderful addition to a diversified portfolio, again, further supporting rebalancing. So advisors are going to quickly realize, those who are not already engaged in this, that the advantages of Bitcoin into a diversified portfolio supports the notion of modern portfolio theory and the efficient frontier. It improves the Sharpe ratio, the Sortino ratio, max drawdown, and standard deviation. They're going to discover this is a wonderful addition to their efforts to deliver their clients above average returns at below average risks. That's all we're all trying to do with diversification, and Bitcoin is additive rather than detrimental in that regard. That's great, Rick. And, you know, you outlined some of the benefits of Bitcoin, but you also talked about how this is a brand new asset class. And it's going to take time for advisors and other investors to kind of get their heads around it. But is it fair to use the analogy of Bitcoin kind of uh, being digital gold and Ether being more like a tech stock? I've heard that analogy. Is that fair? A lot of people uh, refer to that, and I, I won't dispute it heavily. My big beef is people saying, sell your gold and buy Bitcoin. I don't think it's a question of one or the other. If you believe in diversification, you should own both. So I, I don't think it's a replacement for gold, but I do believe it is similar to gold in the sense that gold is widely regarded as a store of value. Uh, and that over very long periods of time, that value rises, if only due to inflation. That is very much true for Bitcoin. It is a store of value. Uh, it is also used as a payment, but it's not a very efficient or effective use of payment compared to other digital assets that are available. Uh, Ethereum is a totally different conversation, and your analogy isn't bad. The way we describe Ethereum as opposed to Bitcoin, the reason that Ethereum was invented is that Bitcoin has a severe limitation. Bitcoin is dumb money, meaning that if I want to send you money and I send it to you via Bitcoin, the problem with that is that if I send you my Bitcoin, you receive it. And I might not want you to. I might want you to receive the money only if you do something for me. In other words, say I want you to deliver concert tickets to me or the deed to your house, or I want you to get my money only if uh, Dallas wins the game on Sunday, and I don't want you to get the money if they lose. So it's an if-then contract, only if somebody wins an election or only if it rains or only if you deliver a service for me. In other words, it's a contract, and businesses engage in legal contracts all the time. You do this, and I do that. And only in the fulfillment of the contract does the money change hands. That's what Ethereum does. Bitcoin can't do that. You send Bitcoin and I receive it. But with Ethereum, you can send the, the Ethereum, but I don't receive it until I fulfill my end of the bargain. In other words, Ethereum acts kind of like an escrow agent. In other words, it's called programmable money or smart contracts. And this creates a use in commercial operation 
that Bitcoin cannot do. And that's why there's so much excitement about Ethereum and so much development activity in Ethereum and why Ethereum is the second largest digital asset now, almost as big as Bitcoin itself, because of the commercial applications that it offers. And that's why I believe, and many others do, that you shouldn't own only Bitcoin. You should own both Bitcoin and Ethereum, because between the two, they're the Coke and Pepsi of crypto. The two of them together have 80 or 90 percent market share of the entire trillion dollar asset class. Uh, and so recognizing that there are differences between these coins is kind of like the shoes in your closet. You have running shoes and you have shoes you wear with a tuxedo and different Shoes have different purposes and different digital assets have different purposes. Some are meant to replicate gold as a digital gold. Others are meant to replicate uh, commercial uses that have application around the world. Rick, we we have uh, been talking a lot about the uh, spot Bitcoin ETF filings and the likelihood of uh, SEC approval. But there's another big thing coming up in the crypto space that I know you're super familiar with. Uh, but maybe a lot of our audience is not real fluent on, is the upcoming halving or halvening. I don't know. I've heard it referred to as a couple different things. What exactly is this and what does this mean? Yeah, it goes by both words, uh, which is kind of confusing, uh, whether you call it a halving or a havening, you know, take a choice. <laughs> uh, this has to do with the technological function of Bitcoin. Uh, and it is a big deal. You're absolutely right, Jeff. Uh, when Bitcoin was first in, uh, invented and released back in January of 2010, uh, every 10 minutes, new Bitcoins are released into the system. Uh, and that is how it always works. About every 10 minutes, new Bitcoins are released. In the beginning, back in 2010, 50 Bitcoins were released every 10 minutes. But there's this thing called the halvening, which says that every four years, the number of Bitcoins that get that gets released is cut in half. So it was 50. And then after four years, it was cut to 25. And then it was cut again to 12 and a half. And then in 2020, it was cut again to six and a quarter. And that's how many Bitcoins gets released today every four minutes, uh, every 10 minutes. In 2024, around April or May, will be the next halving. And the number of Bitcoins that gets released will be cut from six and a quarter to three and an eighth. And this happens every four years and will continue to happen until the year 2140, when the last of the Bitcoins are finally released. History has shown us that every time a halving occurs, the price of Bitcoin rises dramatically. And it's easy to understand why. If I was getting 10 and now I'm only getting five, I want the five to be worth twice as much as they were worth before. Think of it like mm -hmm. a stock split. So if I'm only getting half of what I got before, I want each one to be worth twice as much. So there has always been a rapid, massive increase in the price of Bitcoin shortly before and in the months following the halving. That's another reason why we believe we're seeing the price increase over the last month or two in Bitcoin. We think this will continue through the summer and frankly, well into 2025. This has happened every time uh, this has occurred and I don't see any reason why it would be any different now. And, and the halving is scheduled for April, is that correct? Yeah, they, they haven't released the actual date yet, but the estimates that I have seen uh, are late April, early May. 
Tell us a little bit about your operation there, Rick, the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals. I know you've been working on it for a few years. I know you've written at least one book on it. You're you're incredibly uh, prolific in terms of writing, but uh, what's going on at your uh, at your shop there? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I appreciate that. Yeah, The Truth About Crypto is my most recent book, which was uh, debuted as a number one bestseller on Amazon. Uh, I've been involved in the crypto space since 2012, back when Bitcoin was $400. And I realized two things pretty quick. One is that Bitcoin and, and crypto generally is a transformational technology as significant as the internet was back in the 90s. We all miss the internet. We None of us invested in it. We all blew it. We're all kicking ourselves because we didn't invest in internet stocks back in the 90s and stick with them. Some of us did, but we got blown out by the dot-com bubble and ran away scared. Uh, and we're kicking ourselves about that today. You know, if only I'd bought Amazon way back when, right? Uh, And I'm determined that we don't make that same mistake this time around with what is widely called Internet 3.0, which is blockchain technology. So I realized that this is a transformational technology, but I also realized that the financial services community is unaware of this tech, doesn't appreciate or understand how transformative it is in global commerce and how significant the investment opportunities are. So back in 2015, I created DACFP. Uh, the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals. And we are strictly a crypto education company. We don't manage money. We don't sell product. We're we're not serving investors. All we do is teach financial advisors and their firms, their home office team, their risk and compliance teams, the investment committees, their C-suite, their boards. We teach them what this technology is, how it works, what the investment opportunities are, Uh, how to construct a portfolio, how to create compliant, safe strategies that are consistent with your firm's culture that allow you to provide exposure to this asset class to your clients uh, without disruption, without fear that a regulator is going to put the hammer to you. We, In fact, one of the most popular courses I teach is called How to Build Your Business by Hating Bitcoin. I don't really care whether you like it or not. I want you to be fluent in it, just like you're fluent in annuities. You might hate annuities, but you understand them. You know how they work. You're able to give your clients advice about annuities. You ought to be able to do the same thing with Bitcoin. Because when these ETFs come out, Jeff, and you got nine companies all trying to gain market share, you're going to see a ton of advertising from all of them. Your clients are going to see that advertisement, and they're going to turn to their advisors saying, what is this? Should I invest? Which one should I buy? How much should I buy? You need to be able to answer their questions. You need to be able to explain crypto taxation. You need to be able to explain crypto estate planning and crypto charitable giving. If you can't do that, your clients are going to go find an advisor who can. So that's what we do at DACFP is just give you that level of education. And we created the CBDA, uh, a professional designation listed on FINRA's database that is the certified in blockchain and digital assets. It's an online self-study course. You get 18 CE credits. It's a world-class faculty. Scott Stornetta, the co-inventor of blockchain, is on our faculty. And it allows you to become fluent in this brand new asset class so that you can do your job of serving your client, whether or not you like or ever intend to invest in Bitcoin. That's great, Rick. And where can uh, listeners go to learn more about the educational programs that you offer? Uh, you simply go to DACFP.com, D-A-C-F-P.com. We host a lot of webinars. We do live conferences. Uh, my book, The Truth About Crypto, the CBDA program, all of it's available at DACFP.com. 
Fantastic. Well, Rick, we're going to have to leave it there. You gave us a ton of great insight. Thanks so much for your time. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fighters episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.